Bill Nye takes us light sailing this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you sailing on the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. So much to talk about this week. Rather than bring us her regular Q&A segment, we'll hear from Emily Lakdawalla about two of last week's big events in the solar system, the confirmation of water on the moon and the beginning of Mars Exploration Rover Spirit's attempt to free itself from a Martian sand trap. Then we'll turn to Bill Nye, the science and planetary guy, for the details about light sail, the Planetary Society's ambitious plan to fly as many as three solar sails, with the first targeting a 2010 launch. Bruce Betts will also be along for our regular What's Up look at the night sky this week, including puppies. It really was a busy week. Rosetta, the European Space Agency's comet mission, had its last close encounter with Earth, The spacecraft swung past our planet to pick up speed for its 2014 rendezvous with comet Churyumov-Gerasimenko. Check out the cool images in Emily's blog article. We've got the link at planetary.org slash radio. While you're in the blog, you can read about the big announcement from the LCROSS mission leaders. There really is water hiding in shadows on the moon. You may remember our coverage of the Lunar Crater Observation and Sensing Satellite a few weeks ago. Emily Lakdawalla covered an LCROSS press conference last week. The Planetary Society's Science and Technology Coordinator also attended a briefing on plans to get a spirited little rover rolling across Gusev Crater once again after six months of immobility. Emily, let's start with the news about Spirit, which uh, is actually now trying to extricate itself from the sand trap? Yeah, I guess by the time this airs, it it will have been issued commands to start the first drive to get out of the sand trap. This is uh, not going to be a quick process, I read. It will be very, very slow. The first command will be to tell Spirit to drive forward five meters. And of course, that won't result in five meters of motion unless there are some little Mars aliens sticking rocks under Spirit's wheels. It will result <laughs> in the wheel spinning, but who knows if Spirit will move at all out of its sand trap. But we'll see. Let's, let's all hope that, that it does. And this is all based on these, these uh, simulations that they've been doing at JPL? Yeah, although I think it's kind of funny that after months and months of simulations, they still wound up with the same uh, idea for getting spirit out of the trap that they used for getting opportunity out of the trap, which is basically to just go straight out, straight back out the way they came in. <laughs> How much trouble is that non-functioning uh, wheel going to be? Well, it's actually kind of a mixed bag for Spirit because, um, I mean, it's it's never good to have an anchor, to have a dead wheel. And the dead wheel does serve as an anchor. But the other thing that the dead wheel has been doing is staying on top of the surface where the other spinning wheels have been digging down. So it acted as sort of a reverse anchor in a sense that it kept at least that one wheel on top of the Mars soil. Mm. Has there been any discussion of how this kind of situation can can be avoided? I mean, God forbid, spirit should get itself out of uh, this one sand trap and drop into another one uh, a meter or two away. Yeah, that was actually my main question for the panel. And they have learned something about how they got into the situation. They couldn't have foreseen it. But now, in retrospect, having gotten a better look at the data and a better understanding of what happened, they realized that Spirit's left side wheels are actually inside a crater, a crater that is so subtle they couldn't actually see it until they looked at it in topography. And looking at it in photos, it's not obvious. 
But it looks like this very shallow crater, about five meters across, got filled with this very, very soft, loose, uncohesive, uh, sulfate-rich sand. And then a crust formed over the top, what they call dura crust on Mars. And Spirit's left side wheels just broke through the crust, kind of like breaking through the icy surface of slightly melted snow to a very powdery layer underneath that it's just having a terrible time digging out of. Mm. The right side wheels are outside the crater. And so they're, they're on firmer ground. I think I remember a very pretty image of this uh, little topography that they've uh, created in uh, Spirit's immediate neighborhood. Uh, was that in the blog? That is in the blog. They, they made this image from Spirit's, actually, the, the camera data from taken from a position before Spirit got into the trap. And the key thing they had to do to make that picture was to remove a, a regional slope. Um, the, the crater is not at all obvious in a, in a normal topographic view, but if you kind of tilt the topography and remove this this regional slope, then all of a sudden the crater pops into relief and you see it. And they can do this for the rest of the terrain that Spirit is headed toward, and, and so hopefully avoid the same kind of trap in the future. All right, much more on the blog, of course, and uh, other details will show up uh, at planetary.org. Our uh, colleague AJS Rail continues to uh, follow the progress of uh, both rovers, uh, Mars Exploration Rovers. Let's get to Elcross and this uh, confirmation of water at the North Pole of the Moon. Yeah, I'll say it's it's definitely exciting, but it's also an enormous relief that Elcross found water in the plume data because this was a mission where let's say that the centaur had impacted and they looked at the plume and they didn't find water, you wouldn't know if there wasn't any water at the pole or if uh, they had just hit a dry spot the same way the Galileo probe went into a dry spot on Jupiter. So I have to say it's a, it's a tremendous relief, I think, to the entire community of scientists interested in the moon that they did find water and a decent quantity of it. Uh, you say a decent quantity. Is this the kind of deposit that uh, that people have been hoping for all along or is it a little more moderate? Well, yes and no. I think that for finding water, worst case would be finding water that was only bound chemically to the minerals. But um, the principal investigator said that they that the band strengths, the way that they measured the water, they, they saw a strong enough signal that they're pretty sure that there actually is water ice mixed with dust grains, which means that if you could you know put a bunch of this rock into a vessel and heat it up, you'd actually get water dripping out of it, which is really good news. And they had some uh, pretty amazing images that they revealed. They did, but I, you know, the the most amazing things were were really in the spectral data. What they call the squiggly lines, kind of self-deprecatingly, um, uh, geologists, people who like to use images, always dismiss these as squiggly lines. But the squiggly lines, as I've been told by a spectroscopist friend of mine, the squiggly lines are your friends, and they actually <laughs> do contain a lot of information in those little squiggles. And a spectroscopist can look at the squiggly lines and say, "Hey, I see a water band. That there's definitely." water there. It turns out that the squiggles are so complicated that they're there's evidence for a ton of other materials in there, and they're just not quite ready to say yet what all those other minerals are. But they did uh, divulge that the spectra don't look all that different from the spectra of a centaur or a trojan, an outer solar system sort of asteroidy kind of body. So there's probably a lot of um, organic materials, sulfur dioxide, uh, who knows what, what all is in there, but there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. All right, much more news to come, and probably the best place to follow that that I know of is the Planetary Society blog. Primarily maintained by Emily Lakdawalla, the Science and Technology Coordinator for the Planetary Society. Emily, we'll talk to you again next week. All right. Thanks, Matt. We've got links at planetary.org slash radio to Emily's coverage of both spirit and the discovery of lunar water. Don't go away. In just one minute, we'll learn about light sail from Bill Nye, the science and planetary guy. This is Planetary Radio. I'm Robert Picardo. 
I traveled across the galaxy as the doctor in Star Trek Voyager. Then I joined the Planetary Society to become part of the real adventure of space exploration. The Society fights for missions that unveil the secrets of the solar system. It searches for other intelligences in the universe, and it built the first solar sail. It also shares the wonder through this radio show, its website, and other exciting projects that reach around the globe. I'm proud to be part of this greatest of all voyages, and I hope you'll consider joining us. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Our nearly 100,000 members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. It was just last week on this show that Andrian helped us announce LightSail, the Planetary Society's new plan to sail through space powered solely by the light of the sun. You demanded details, and we've got them, especially at planetary.org. Bill Nye was on Capitol Hill November 9th for the unveiling of LightSail. As vice president of the Planetary Society, Bill has taken special interest in the organization's drive to build and fly the first solar sail. The former aeronautical engineer is probably still best known for his beloved Bill Nye the Science Guy TV series. He is also an author and public speaker. Want to learn algebra? Disney's Solving for X series is hosted by the inimitable science guy. Of course, you can also hear him right here on PlanRad, providing a weekly commentary, but not this week. So, Bill, I guess it was your pleasure to uh, host that little party last week. Yes, I was the MC, the master of ceremonies. And you had a good turnout. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We had several people uh, from congressional offices, so-called staffers. And we had Annie Drian, the uh, chairman of the board of Cosmo Studios, and of course, Carl Sagan's wife. She is the same. Uh, her daughter, her son uh, were there with their uh, significant others and wives, and uh, it was great. It was a really a great event because everybody who spoke uh, was so passionate about both the solar sail and Carl Sagan himself. See, this was the 75th anniversary of the birth of Carl Sagan. It would have, would have been his 75th birthday. And how very fitting it was, it is, that we announced the Light Sail 1, or the Planetary Society's next solar sail adventure, on his birthday. His sister was there with her husband. It was great. It was really nice. So the idea is the Planetary Society through the great support of some benefactors and all of the members, has enough money to try to build a spacecraft. It's, it's just a very unusual thing for a non-governmental organization, not-for-profit, to build a spacecraft. And wait, wait, there's more. This is a spacecraft that has no rocket motor. Once it's deployed, it's going to be pushed through space just with photons. The plan right now, at least, uh, and a pretty firm plan for LightSail 1, calls for quite quite a bit of smaller spacecraft than good old Cosmos 1 from uh, nearly five years ago. And yet, and yet, a higher performing spacecraft. Smaller is better? Well, we hope so. The thing <laughs> is, a couple things have changed. We, we've spent five more years thinking about it. 
And I remind us all that Lou Friedman, your executive director of the Planetary Society, wrote a textbook about solar sailing in the 1970s. I have an autographed copy. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite a thing. Uh, so the other thing that we're doing differently, got to thinking about it, and we're buying or making use of technology that NASA developed for a different purpose. NASA was going to make this very small spacecraft that would hook on to orbital debris. The nuts and bolts uh, dropped off of satellites, pieces of heat shield that are still bouncing around high above the Earth's sky. And they would grab onto these things and would have a, an umbrella-shaped drag chute. would have this uh, square-shaped aerodynamic drag maker, which would be made of very thin material on very uh, lightweight struts. And it would, it would drag in the very, very few molecules that are up that high and bring these things down. Uh, well, this deployment system for this parachute gizmo turns out to be pretty nicely suited to a solar sail if you are willing to make your sail square. That is to say, it has four triangular sails, so the whole spacecraft is one big square. And the, the, the struts, which is a big thing, uh, if you have a sailboat, your boom and your mast and your bowsprit they have got to be strong things. They, they have to be stiff, or your sail is going to break them or become, uh, become a rag blowing in the wind. Well, get this, everybody. The struts are the same steel as a Stanley tape measure, as a, <laughs> a high-quality carpenter's tape measure. I love it. Yeah, it's amazing. And this stuff is just ideally suited for this, even in the icy blackness vacuum of space. So it's got little uh, deployment things that let the springs uncoil. So you wind it up in such a way that uh, it's, it's, it's preloaded. A, a tape measure is only loaded uh, when you pull it out and then push it back in. But this would be wound up before you leave the Earth. And so these things go, and uh, can I just add that sound effect, Matt? Please, please. And all four sails will deploy, and then we have got a scheme to have a couple of cameras with fancy upside-down mirrors, and we'll be able to image just about the whole spacecraft. It was not immediately obvious to me as it was with uh, Cosmos 1, with those, uh, those big wings, those big sails that could literally be turned on their axis. Uh, it's not obvious to me how this thing is going to be steered. It's not obvious to anyone. <laughs> not yet, I hope. Yeah, so there was talk of thrusters, talk of a center of gravity moving system. So you'd pull your uh, tape measure springs in a little bit or extend them a little bit to make one of the four sails uh, change shape, especially change shape with regard to the light source. And we'll see if, uh, if we have the energy and the resources to do it on light sail one. This is also going to depend on what's known as CubeSat technology. Yeah, CubeSat. <laughs> which, which means it's going to be tiny when it's packaged, right? Yeah. So it's a nano, nano satellite, and CubeSat, Cube satellites, cubical satellites are an old NASA program used at universities and colleges. And the thing is 10 centimeters on a side. That's a cube. So if you don't know 10 centimeters, a cubic 10 centimeter thing is a liter a leader of spacecraft. So the, ours is a three cube, 
So it's the equivalent of three 10 centimeter cubes stacked up in a line. So it's 30 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. That's just about a foot by four inches by four inches. It's not very big, but with the sort of origami style, origami style of folding of these solar sails, which are only five microns, hmm. that's about a hundredth of uh, somebody with thick hair. It's about a hundredth of a human hair. And it's, that's thin, everybody. And the reason it's thin is to keep the weight down, keep the mass down, actually, the mass. Anything that reflects this well should, according to any reasonable calculation, reflect photons. And the momentum of photons, although they have no mass, the momentum of photons will gently push this thing along. Who's going to build this for us? It's Cal Poly, California Polytechnical Institute in San Luis Obispo. SLO, slow, we call it. Oh, but they are fast thinkers. <laughs> so these are students who are very well tutored and guided by a guy named Jim Cantrell that we, the Planetary Society, has hired to manage this thing. He has a lot of experience in space, well, spacecraft. He has a lot of experience with CubeSats. And the students are very, very good. They're, they know what they're doing. So a lot of this work is done by hand, all very careful with people being careful. And so uh, we're very hopeful. The key, though, the next thing you got to have, which went wrong, went wrong with Cosmos 1, you got to get a ride. you got to have a good rocket. Right now, we have several offers. The primary candidate, or the first one everybody's thinking of, is the Minotaur, which is a standard military and commercial put a communication satellite in orbit style booster. You know, there's a lot of rockets that are shot off all the time that we don't hear about because it's, it's routine. Space exploration with small satellites is routine. This is, and this is one of the most exciting things about this program, is that uh, it's a program. It doesn't stop with light sail one. Oh, that's right. And this was, I think this is mostly Lou's idea, but I'm not sure. Our, our, our executive director, Jim Cantrell, the project manager, may have also realized that really the best thing to do is to do this in stages. With Cosmos 1, we if you will, pun intended, shot the moon. We tried to do it all in one spacecraft, steering, twisting sails, inflatable struts, giant thing. This is a much more modest spacecraft, and there'll be one that's somewhat bigger, and then one that's somewhat bigger after that. And the idea is, this one, the first one, light sail one, we just want to prove that a solar sail will get nudged through space by sunlight. That we get some orbital energy increase. Then on the second one, we want to orbit the Earth for real. And the third one, if things go really well, we'd go from the Earth to the moon. Mm. We got about a minute left. I don't think uh, we would need to remind people of how personally inspired you are by this project. But, but go ahead and do it anyway. Remind us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so ever since I was a kid, ever since I was in engineering school, I read Lou Freeman's book about solar sailing. There was a proposal to catch up to Comet Holly with a solar sail. And that didn't come into being because, I think, because of the Vietnam War, people were tired of spending money in space. But this would be inspirational, people. This would be the first spacecraft ever powered without a rocket. And we would do it by our understanding of this subtle, subtle thing in light where uh, it has momentum but no mass. And this is done not by a government trying to win a Cold War. This is done by people like you and me who just support the Planetary Society 
and we got enough money and enough expertise together to build our own privately funded brand new technology spacecraft. Making use of old technology for sure, but the principal idea is totally new and cool. And this is not the last word you'll have about uh, LightSail. Thank you, Matt. I hope not. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today, and uh, we'll have you back next week with the regular commentary. Thank you, Matt. i got to fly Bill Nye, the planetary guy. There he is, Bill Nye, the planetary guy, also known as the science guy for many, many years. He is the vice president of the Planetary Society, and just last week, on the 75th anniversary of Carl Sagan's birth, he uh, hosted, moderated, emceed the event at which... uh, the world first heard about light sail from the Planetary Society. better to end a really big shoe, a really big edition of Planetary Radio than with What's Up? And Dr. Bruce Betts is here. He's the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. So I, I guess you've been someone involved in uh, all the news of this week as well. You said you were just on the local news talking about Lunar H2O. I have. It's been kind of a fun week. I, I did the moon story and the lunar crater. And uh, then we've been talking all week about light sails. So when Lou Friedman's trapped under a rock, then I've been taking interviews <laughs> with uh, various press uh, outfits and uh, radio and print. A big week ahead, too, at least in the night sky. Tell us about it. Big week. Well, I don't know about a big week. We'll see. The- and look, can I interrupt for a second? There are puppies, there are dogs running around us here, which is oddly appropriate, as we will learn. It's true. We had to rent these dogs to get <laughs> They're prop dogs. So probably... <laughs> Come on, bark. Bark. Roof. 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 Yeah, why should they bark? We're doing it for them. Well, I was talking to you anyway. <laughs> for those who catch this podcast right after, or this podcast or radio shortly after it comes out, I'll mention the, uh, the Leonids. Frankly, I, I hadn't bothered to mention the Leonids because... They're a weird meteor shower. They About every 33 years, they have a huge spike when we go right through a big clumpy part of the temple, Comet Temple Tuttle debris field. But that happened a few years ago. So now they're usually typically pretty feeble, meaning you know, 20, 15, 20 an hour. But I guess there are some predictions that on uh, Tuesday morning, the 17th, uh, there will be uh, up to 100, or if you're in Asia in particular and hit right at the peak in the pre-dawn hours, you may get as many as 300 to 500. Oh, my goodness. But this is still a little not exactly precise, so uh, probably for most of the time it'll be uh, tens of meteors at best. But still, no new moon, uh, something to look forward to. I will give you uh, the longer look, though. The Geminids, traditionally basically the most reliable and consistent of the meteor showers, will be on December 14th and uh, under a new moon as well. So uh, we'll remind you of that, but also that that's good if you don't have a chance to check out the Leonids. We have Jupiter in the evening sky, brightest star-like object over in the west. Uh, We have in the pre-dawn sky, you might still catch very bright Venus very low in the east, or you might not because it's really low. Uh, But you can catch Saturn well above it in the east, and uh, Mars actually rising in the late, uh, late evening sky, reddish thing, getting brighter through the end of January. Let us go on to this week in space history. 1969, that's that's like a 10-year type anniversary. Huh? Well, it's a multiple of 10. 
Oh, okay. People get excited about those because we have 10 fingers. Just say 40. All right. The 40th anniversary of the landing of Apollo 12 on the lunar surface, the Mm. second human landing on the surface of the moon. And a little bit closer, five years ago, the NASA's Swift spacecraft was launched. It's been giving us some uh, great results on gamma ray bursts, uh, exploring the the deep, deep universe. Yeah, we've talked about that on on this show, as a matter of fact. Quite a a successful uh, little probe out there, swinging around to catch those big bangs. Speaking of successful little probes, we go on to Random Space Fact! That's too bad you're only on one microphone because the stereo effect was would have just been great. Uh, well, just imagine it, everyone. <laughs> so Vanguard 1, we've talked about it before. It's the oldest human-made object in space, launched in 1958. But here's your random space fact for the day. It has now completed more than 200,000 orbits of oh, the Earth. wow. Cool, huh? That is Racking cool. up more than 6 billion miles or 10 billion kilometers. Uh. That is wonderful. And it's not decaying. I mean, it's basically no. up there forever. Yeah, I don't know about forever, but it's at least another few centuries. Tens, we, we maybe, won't be worrying maybe about it. Let big, us go on to the trivia contest. Big contest. Big, big contest. <laughs> big, big, huge, giant. Well, uh, dog-related anyway. So we asked you, Strelka and Belka, the first uh, dog successfully uh, returned from space, and this by the Soviets. Uh, one of them had uh, had puppies. One of those puppies was given to some famous American. Who was that? How'd we do? Wow, what a response. And I think, again, I don't know if it was the fact that puppies were involved or that we're giving away a Cosmos One solar sail team collector's item, team windbreaker. Uh, But a huge response. So thank you to all of you. Uh, One of those puppies, we would have accepted either JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, or his daughter, Caroline, who actually ended up with this pup named Pushinka, which is, in Russian, get this, Fluffy. <laughs> Isn't that perfect? Fluffy. And then another Kennedy dog, and uh, Pushinka had a little detente thing going on and made more puppies. <laughs> uh. And uh, JFK referred to those as pupniks. <laughs> But it was, uh, I'm, I'm proud to say, it was Philip Espy. Philip Espy in uh, Brittany, France, who uh, was randomly chosen by Random.org as our winner this time around. I do want to mention that uh, quite a few people mentioned that there is a movie coming out, apparently a, a Russian-made animated film made this year about Strelka and Belka which is going to be released soon in the United States, maybe next month. Cool. i got to mention this as well. Georgi Petrov, who lives in New York City, said that last winter he saw Caroline Kennedy walking a dog, and he couldn't help but wonder if that wasn't maybe the grand pup of uh, Pushinka, <laughs> great-grandchild. Great-grandpupnik. Yes, right, exactly. So fun stuff. Anyway, Philip, we're going to, Philippe, we're going to send you a Cosmos One team windbreaker uh yes and we'll be giving away one more of those this uh next week based on last week's trivia contest uh but let's go on to this week's and uh, what shall we give away this week now? how about a hug a planet your very own huggable mars oh they're so nice they're so <laughs> comforting in a cold martian kind of a way don't stick your tongue on it that's all. <laughs> <laughs> wow now you tell me <laughs> That explains so much. All right, I'm going to uh, do something a little different. 
A while back, I uh, got a, a suggestion, and we've gotten these occasionally from a, a listener, and I'm going to go ahead and go with that. From William Stewart, he suggested this trivia question. What is the last mission for which NASA named a backup crew? Mm, okay. So they used to, in the early days, in Mercury, Apollo, and how much farther, we'll let you figure out. They would name backup crews. Uh, when What's the last mission that they did that for? Go to planetary.org slash radio. Find out how to enter. And you've got until Monday, November 23rd at 2 p.m. Pacific time to get us that answer. What do you think we should think about, Matt? Uh, puppies. Fluffy. All right, everybody. Go out there. Look up in the night sky and think about fluffy puppies. Thank you. Can I... He's Bruce Betts. He's a big fluffy puppy himself. He's... <laughs> he joins us every week here. <laughs> for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Keep looking up.